Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. There are a few stories I'm going to share with you, but uh, other than that, we'll be picking up your phone calls. I want to get into my rant today about how uh, Kirsten Cinema apparently doesn't want black people to vote, like the white supremacists of my youth. People like her are hiding their dirty work with phrases like bipartisanship and states' rights, and their main weapon is the filibuster. We'll get to that in a minute. And authoritarian watch. Florida may force teachers to wear microphones so parents and maybe fascist vigilantes can monitor lessons. I don't know, maybe these right-wingers would learn something, but <laughs> I know that's not their agenda. I want to get into what happened with the arrest of Stuart Rhodes. Why don't Black Lives Matter folks getting arrested, get the same treatment as the Oath Keepers. He got the uh, white glove treatment, I'll tell you about that. But to start out, my bafflement and outrage, the title of my piece at HartmanReport.com is Kirsten Cinema Doesn't Want Black People to Vote? Question mark. You know, I guess the real question is why? Is, uh, are she and Joe Manchin, and they're in this together. I'm mentioning Cinema in the headline because she's the one who gave the speech. But, you know, basically she and Joe Manchin, are they, are they both white supremacists? Is that what this is all about? Or are they in league with white supremacists or working for them? Are some of their ca campaign contributions coming from white supremacist groups? Or two steps removed, are they working for people willing to cynically exploit white supremacy for their own continued wealth and power? I, I think of, for example, George Herbert Walker Bush with his Willie Horton ads. Or is it possible Amy Siskind is uh, tweeting that she has inside information that cinema, Kirsten Cinema, has this very small group of people that have surrounded her that you know interact with her on her staff and whatnot. She's largely out of touch with the larger electorate because she only meets with wealthy donors. That's it, as far as we can tell. And uh, Amy Siskind says that uh, she and her and her little tightly knit group have decided that uh, she's a great candidate for president. That she can run as John McCain 2.0, the lovable rogue. Hey, she did thumbs down on, on uh, minimum wage of 15 bucks an hour, and now she's doing thumbs down on voting rights. 
maybe even as a Republican. I don't know. But uh, I, the one thing I can tell you is that for Mansion and Cinema, this is not about the sanctity or the tradition of the filibuster. Both of them have voted on multiple occasions to go around the filibuster or suspend the filibuster. The last time was just three weeks ago when they suspended the filibuster in order to raise the debt ceiling to keep paying our defense contractors so that, they, so that the defense industry did not have a hit to their profits this year. Honest to God, not making this up. Had the government not, had they not raised the debt ceiling, the government wouldn't have been able to pay its bills or it couldn't pay its bills. Hundreds of billions of dollars that are going to defense contractors would be in limbo, among other things. And, uh, you know, those defense contractors basically support every politician in America. They have built defense factories literally in every congressional district. So they had no problem suspending the filibuster three and a half weeks ago to make sure that the, the, the multi-million dollar a year salary CEOs in the defense industry and the billionaire stockholders and, and, and company owners got their money. No problem. But how about black people getting the vote? How about Hispanic people and Native Americans and Asian people having the right to vote? How about students being able to vote on campus? How about people over 65, Social Security voters who want to vote by mail being able to vote? Oh, no. No, 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 no. We can't have that, apparently. I mean, back when I was a kid in the 1950s and 60s, we had these same people. You know, Strom Thurmond was the most prominent among them, but there, John Eastland was another one. There was a bunch of them. And they were, they were mostly Democrats back then. This was pre-65. And they would talk about things like, you know, we have to have bipartisan agreement, and uh, this is about states' rights. And, and what was the tool that they used? The filibuster. In fact, the filibuster was used exclusively to filibuster civil rights legislation from 1866 to 1965. That's all they used it for, was to block civil rights legislation. So, I mean, you know, that, if nothing else, should tell you pretty much everything you know. Pramila Jayapal, Representative Pramila Jayapal, the uh, chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, she's a regular guest on this program. She said, without this voting rights legislation, quote, our democracy doesn't survive without this. This is just an absolute stain on our democracy, and it goes way back. I mean, back in, 19, in 1811, right, we're now talking about, what, the presidency of Monroe, I think? It must have been, let's see, Madison? It might have been ba in Madison. In any case, yeah, it had to have been Madison, 1811. In New York, New York State freed African-Americans could vote legally, men uh, could vote. And the Democratic Republicans who were aligned largely with the Southern slaveholders and the, you know, didn't like this and the Federalists were getting, who were, you know, the, 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 the more Northern aligned party, the Federalists were getting votes from these African-Americans in New York State. And the New York Assembly, the state assembly, was in the hands of the Democratic Republicans, and they were worried about the black vote. And so they passed this law. I mean, this is literally, this is the first, as far as I can tell, one of the very first voter suppression laws in the United States in a state where it was legal for black people to vote 
that was directed against black people. And it was titled, An Act to Prevent Frauds at Election and Slaves from Voting. Because what the, what the Democratic Republicans in New York State were claiming was that black people, sla enslaved people, were escaping from the South, coming up to the New York, and even though they hadn't yet proven, that, you know, gone through the process of becoming illegally and officially free, they were voting. In other words, they were illegal voters. They were illegal immigrants. They were illegals. Honest to God. Uh, there's, a, there's an amazing uh, book called, uh, uh, hang on just a second here, let me get it. It's called uh, the, In the Shadow of Slavery, African Americans in New York City, 1623 to 1863, um, by Leslie M. Harris, who's a scholar in this stuff. And she writes, uh, the, 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 because of the role of the Federalist Party in securing emancipation for New York slaves and the Democratic-Republican Party's ties to the slave South, New York's blacks largely supported the Federalists. The Democratic-Republican Party in New York City exacerbated this antagonism by focusing on blacks as a key voting bloc that could prevent a Democratic-Republican ascendancy in local and state politics. And so they passed this law that I just described. And then she goes on to say, then Democratic-Republican inspectors at polling booths attempted to dissuade blacks from voting by harassing them for proof of their freedom. In 1811, the Democratic-Republican-dominated New York State Legislature made such harassment legal by passing an act to prevent frauds at election and slaves from voting, end quote. She writes, blacks who wish to vote first had to obtain proof of their freedom from a Supreme Court justice, mayor, recorder, or judge of any common court uh, any common court of common pleas in the state. They then had to pay that person to draw up the necessary certificate and then bring this proof of their freedom to the polls. It was a voter ID law. And nonetheless, in, in the election of 1813, the Democratic Republicans lost in that election. The Federalists took over the New York State Assembly and again, quoting Harris's book, she says, when a close assembly election in 1813 in the midst of the War of 1812 was declared in favor of the Federalists, Democratic Republicans blamed the victory on the 300 black New York City voters. Well, you know, nothing has changed, apparently. So why do you think Mansion and Cinema? Are taking this action. I, like I said, I am not buying this this uh, sales pitch that they're putting out that it has to do with the filibuster. They just blew up the filibuster three weeks ago so that the uh, CEOs of the defense industry could get paid. I'm not buying it. Is it that they think that there are enough white supremacists in the Democratic base that this is going to help them? Is it that they're planning on flipping to the Republican Party, which has become now the party of white supremacy? What do you think is happening? This is the Tom Hartman Program. And I would say the most important point of all this is that this means we have to redouble our efforts to hold the House and gain more seats in the Senate to make these quizlings irrelevant. Oh, my, oh, my. What an extraordinary day, huh? Jeremiah in Coalport, Pennsylvania. Hey, Jeremiah, what's on your mind today? <clears throat> hey, Tom. I was wondering... I'm looking back at the beginning of Biden's administration, and um, he tried to work with the Republicans, and the Republicans pretended to go along, but then they didn't. And the objective there was to delay. Right. When I'm looking at what Manchin was doing with uh, the whole 
build back better thing. You know, if he said, no, we need to vote for the infrastructure bill first. Well, in, we'll in the midst of that, there were there were at least a, a dozen weeks of delay where Manchin said, just let, let us just tweak it a little bit more. Yes. Yes. OK, exactly. He's saying, let's tweak it a little bit more. Let's tweak it a little bit more. And then he says, you know what? I'm just not voting for it. So I'm wondering if he's taking marching orders behind the scenes from the Koch brothers uh, saying, okay, you know, know, they've given up on the Republicans. Now we need you, Manchin and Sinema, to delay this thing, uh, to drag it out as long as possible. So that yeah, it's not. It's, first of all, it's not just the Koch brothers. I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of right wing right. billionaires and their foundations and their family foundations, even you know, Scaife and Bradley and whatnot, who are in on this. And and you've got you know the the, the billionaires who supported Donald Trump and whatnot. So there's there's uh, shall we say shared class interest right across the board. But yeah, I'm I, I'm quite certain, Jeremiah, that that's exactly what happened. You know, the that the, the marching orders that Mansion and Cinema got in exchange for whatever it is they're getting, which is almost certainly money, if not power, or both, were delay this and delay this and delay this until it becomes irrelevant, until nothing can be done about it, until we're in the in the campaign season. Okay, so, you know, like, I don't know if there's, like, a silver lining from this, you know, because if they want us to delay, you know, th- does that mean that's actually possible to win without Mansion and Cinema in 2022? You know, like, is it possible not to get anything done and to somehow run an effective campaign that will get us more seats in the House and more seats in the Senate? But I'm not sure how we do that without voting rights. Well, here's the thing. Most of the state, there are a couple of exceptions to this in what I think are becoming swing states very rapidly, specifically Texas and Georgia and, 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 and Arizona. But um, generally speaking, the states that have the most draconian anti-voting rights laws, voter suppression laws, are states that are already fully controlled by Republicans where there's not going to be a, 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 you know, a well-contested election anyway. Um, I think in some of those states there may be a, you know, a, a blue city where it's going to be harder to, to elect somebody as a consequence of these laws. But I, I, I believe it is still possible that not only can we hold the Senate, because there are more Republicans up for re-election next year than there are Democrats, not only can we hold the Senate in the election of 2022, but we can expand it. I think we can pick up one or two seats that are held by Republicans right now. And I believe it's going to be possible to hold the House if we can maintain a high high enough level of disgust with Republicans that people are just kind of generically voting against against Republicans and for Democrats. Also, the Democratic Party needs to put really popular things on the ballots in every single state, like decriminalization of marijuana and $15 minimum wages. Those are the two things that, that actually polled higher than Joe Biden did in the last election. Jeremiah, thanks for the call. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally-sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out 
for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I just also wanted to flag one other thing for you. As I mentioned, you know, we've got this problem with mansion and cinema and their embrace of white supremacy. On the other side, I got this email this morning from, from the president of FreedomWorks, and it's titled, Save the Filibuster. Dear Thomas, and it starts out with a quote from uh, President Biden in which he says that getting rid of the filibuster is necessary to allow the majority to prevail in the Senate. And then the, you know, after that quote, uh, the author of this says, that's what President Biden said during a speech in Georgia as he outright admitted that the left is working to gut the Senate filibuster in order to force their election takeover schemes into law. As Fox News' Tucker Carlson put it, Joe Biden believes the American people are, quote, stupid and selfish, end quote. He believes if he spends enough time berating patriots like you and me, we'll simply surrender and hand the left indefinite power over every aspect of our lives. And quite frankly, if the grassroots don't take a stand now and stop the left's efforts to gut the Senate filibuster, I'm afraid that's exactly what will happen. Oh, really? Adam Brandon, the president of FreedomWorks, is afraid that we might actually gut the filibuster? That's why, he writes, I'm counting on you to please take immediate action to save the filibuster by calling your U.S. senators and demanding that they oppose all efforts to weaken the Senate filibuster. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has made it clear that he will be holding a vote on gutting the filibuster on or before Monday, January 17th. The left knows, writes Adam Brandon, the left knows that they don't have much time to waste if they're going to maintain their stranglehold on power past the 2022 midterm elections. That's why they're working so frantically to gut the Senate filibuster. They know it's their only hope for rigging our election rules to ensure Democrats never lose another election. Oh, there's that quote from Donald Trump. Ah, what a surprise. He goes on, and this is now underlined, and if they succeed, the floodgates will open and the radical left will have nothing standing in the way of their socialist takeover of America. Everything from packing the Supreme Court with left-wing justices to Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's green raw deal will be forced on the American people, whether we like it or not. Oh my God, these, these people are very concerned. 
He, uh, Adam uh, wraps up his, the email that I got from him this morning that says, I'm not sure our nation could ever recover from such devastation, Thomas. That's why we have no choice but to take a stand now. Please call your U.S. senators at the number below and tell them the American people will not support any politician that helps the left weaken the Senate filibuster. And then the, it says click here to call your Senate, senator now. There's not actually a number below. You have to click. And, of course, when you click through, you'll get all kinds of propaganda and, and, and fundraising appeals. But, you know, hey, that's what's up. They are very worried about it. I think uh, that's a good sign. Janet, Bainbridge Island, Washington. Hey, Janet, what's on your mind today? Just a minute. Just a minute. That's okay. Thank I should have given you a little warning and say, okay, let's pick up some phone calls. Hey, Janet, what's up? Okay, good. Thank you. I want to say that the reason it's so important to Manchin and Cinema that the Voting Rights Act not pass is because they really, really do not want a bigger majority of Democrats in either the House or the Senate. Of course. They could become Republicans if they were really caring about what it means to be a Republican. But the fact is, if they become Republicans, they have no more power. They would be only measly little Republicans. They'd just be two more Republicans. So... Um, the the need to elect Democrats in 2020 is because of the legislation beyond beyond the Voting Rights Act. I agree, and this is what Adam Brandon is is freaking out about. He's like, oh my God, you know, if 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 they if they blow up the filibuster in its entirety, obviously he's he's, he's you know going way beyond what they were proposing. But if they blow up the filibuster in its entirety, then we get the Green New Deal and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and a larger Supreme Court. Oh, my God. I'd like that. <laughs> Janet, thank you for the call. You know, uh, last year in Washington State, the Republican candidate for governor who lost by over a half a million votes refused to concede uh, to say, yeah, I guess I lost the election while well, it just happened again in Florida. This was replacing an empty seat. It was a special election to replace a House Democrat who died in office in April. The Democratic winner, Sheila Cherfulis McCormick, won with 79% of the vote over Republican Jason Mariner, who was born in Boston and then moved down to Florida. And he's uh, refusing to concede. <laughs> he lost by 79% and he's refusing to concede. This is the new Republican Party. Sore losers. They're like just officially sore losers. I don't know. I, what else can you call it? Meanwhile, we have an authoritarian watch in two parts. Republican legislators in Florida are considering a piece of legislation right now that would force teachers to wear microphones in class at all times. So militia members can monitor what the, and white supremacists can monitor what the teachers are saying in case they say anything bad about the Confederacy. Or in case they say anything, you know, bad or true about evolution or human sexuality or reproduction. This is being pitched by Florida State Representative Bob Rommel, a right-wing Republican. He says, it's not their private space, it's our children's space too. The Broward Teachers Union president, Anna Fusco, tells CBS that uh, 
she she says that this could really discourage people from becoming teachers. I mean, would you want to work in a in a in an office or an environment where you had to wear a microphone or you were on camera continuously? I, I realize sitting here wearing a microphone, being on camera, saying that sounds a little odd. But the fact of the matter is that during the breaks, the camera turns off and the microphone is off. And I can say, you know, I mean, I can have conversations with my coworkers and I can have a life, and, but not, a, not in the teachers. Anyhow, the teachers union president uh, down in Broward County says, uh, you want to play big brother every moment? That's not how society should be. We need to get back to where we have trust, we have value, we have faith, and we have conversations, and we can work things out if something happens. So that's, uh, you know, authoritarianism alert number one. Authoritarianism alert number two, uh, the Oath Keeper founder, uh, Stuart Rhodes, when he got arrested, did not get arrested by the FBI in their what appears to be normal fashion, like, you know, when they came after Michael Cohen at 6 o'clock in the morning and, and, you know, banged in the door. Um, kicked in the door. I mean, this is typically what they do. You know, the whole shock and awe thing, drag you out of bed, uh, drag you outside. Instead, they called him up. He happened to be on the phone with the lawyer for one of his Oathkeeper guys who uh, was uh, uh, under indictment. Uh, Jonathan Mosley was the lawyer. He was talking to Mr. Mosley. Rhodes was talking to Mosley on the phone. The FBI called. He conferenced them together. And uh, they worked it out that Rhodes could have time to go upstairs and get dressed and, and flush anything he wanted down the toilet and, uh, you know, erase anything from his hard drives that he needed to do. And then uh, they would meet him outside and, and put him in a car. I don't know if they drove him to Burger King uh, or if they bro drove him to Red Lobster. Uh, maybe they stopped at a, at a much fancier place. It is worth noting that, according to The Atlantic, about two-thirds of Oath Oathkeeper members have a background in either the military or law enforcement. So, uh, you know, it might be just kind of watching out for your own peeps. I don't know. But why don't Black Lives Matter folks, well, just anybody, get the same treatment as the Oathkeepers? Frankly, I think, you know, this is a little more civilized, but on the other hand, this guy was the head, according to the indictment, is alleged to be the head of a conspiracy to destroy the United States of America. And you're going to give him advance warning that you're coming to arrest him and you're going to let him go upstairs and get dressed and play with his computers before you go in? I mean, as much as I'm not a fan of cops kicking indoors, I still you know, get at least knocking on the door and saying, come to the door right now, or we'll kick it in. Something. Anyhow, all that said, let's pick up your phone calls. Tom in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Tom, thanks for listening on SiriusXM. What's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Hey, uh, I know we'd have to change the Constitution to do this, but, you know, these U.S. representatives and senators, they're there to represent their states. So why not have their states pay their salaries? I'm paying tax money to pay for senators and representatives that don't represent me. And also, I think if you did that, it would be more free market situation, which all the Republicans seem to like, because certain states won't be able to pay as much as other states. But I also would like to see, you know, state constitutions write in some kind of recall uh, mechanism for these people that don't do their business for the people of the states they represent, such as if you take lobbyist money for 
campaign contributions, you're not representing the state. You're representing yourself and should be recalled for that. Yeah. You take money from a lobbyist and you put the money back into the state or you they lobby and you're able to get a factory or jobs brought back to the state. Yes, okay. Most, I know it'd have to be a constitutional amendment to change it, but I think the states should pay for their own representatives. Right. I, I respectfully disagree because the federal paycheck actually uh, gives some teeth to things. I mean, for example, Marjorie Taylor Greene right now uh, has had $90,000 deducted from her $180,000 a year annual salary as a, as a representative because she refuses to wear a mask in, in, in Congress. She insists on, on her right to spread disease to her to her uh, fellow legislators. So, uh, you know, it seems like there's some small advantage, I suppose, to standardizing it and federalizing it. Um, with regard to the recalls, there are, uh, most states do have some provision for recall or impeachment um, in, their, in their state constitutions. I, I don't know how universal it is, frankly, Tom, I'm sorry. Um, but uh, it's just, it's very tar- tough to do. I mean, it does happen from time to time. Look at what happened to Gray Davis in California. But that was a huge campaign that was well-funded well, and, and was helped by Enron. Yeah, but he was, yeah, but he was a governor. I'm yeah. talking about senators. Yeah. I'm talking about senators and, and, and the House members. And I understand, yeah, at the House member, you'd have to do it at the district level. Right. Because they're representing a district. They're not representing the state. But well, that's a good point. There should be a mechanism, there should be a mechanism that if you're not representing your district, for the people of that district, the district should be able to say, we want different representation. Yeah, here's the problem with these kind of working around the edges solutions is that sometimes they can blow up in your face. I mean, the real problem that you're identifying here, Tom, is is uh, federal representatives coming out of the states who are more beholden to basically the financial interests who, put, who you know help them stay in power than they are to the people of their state. Um, that, that in summary is is the main thing you're pointing to, correct? Yeah, that and and the fact like I'm paying Joe Manchin's salary. Well, you're probably paying you less know? than a penny of it, but yeah, I get that. Um, but you know, well, I, I get your concern, and, and what I'm saying is, if let's just go right after the cancer itself. Let's get legislation passed that gets money out of politics. Even Republicans don't like the fact that they have to spend four or five hours every single day calling rich people and begging and corporations and begging for money. Even Republicans don't like that. Um, you know, there, there is uh, some support, and, and, and it may be a surprisingly sudden level of support if a piece of legislation had a real serious chance of getting through that would curb that. Um, rather than saying, we're going to put into place a law so that here in, you're in Pennsylvania, for example, here in Pennsylvania, if the state legislature doesn't like how, how uh, so-and-so is representing us in the House of Representatives, we can, we can take them down. Because that could be used to punish for political purposes as easily as for corruption, and then and then no, you've just got a whole nother mess where you've got you know the Republicans control the state, and you've got a Democrat elected from from Pittsburgh, and so the Republicans decide to take that person down. It's like the way that no, uh, you know they tried to impeach be, Clinton. It should be the people of Pittsburgh, the people of the district they represent. Yeah. Not. Not the state legislature. It should be the I, people that. Yeah, I don't. You know, okay, well, in that case, I, you know, I don't disagree with that, Tom. But I, but I still think that the larger issue here that you're trying to solve is the one that we really should be focusing on, which is the corrosive and corrupting influence of money in, on, in politics. But Tom, you know, keep thinking. These are great ideas, and you're moving in the right direction. Thank you so much for the call.
Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Mark Taylor Canfield in Seattle. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Kudos to effective, responsible elected officials in contrast to corrupt folks like Joe Manchin. I'm really impressed by Jeannie Raskin. I participated in a video conference with him last night for boldprogressives.com. Mm -hmm. And also my friend and representative in Congress, Pramila Jayapal, who's proven ever since I've known her that she's a very responsible person who really does care about her constituents in Seattle. She's constantly keeping us informed and educated about important legislation she's working on. She's always trying to help people living in poverty and working families. And it's just great to have such a dedicated progressive fighter in Congress for my district. And Amazing. luckily, yeah, she's got a very safe seat, which is so good. After taking over for Jim McDermott, after he retired, after, what, 14 terms. Yeah. But she went with similar numbers to him, like 80% of the vote. Mm -hmm. And Republicans don't even try to run anyone against her. So, she, you know, she represents Seattle, of course, where progressive public officials are pretty popular. But Representative Raskin was really an inspiration uh, last night during our video conference call. And it's great to see an elected official that doesn't pull any punches when calling out right-wing extremism and neo-fascists. He called Trump the leader of a crime family. And he explained that one of the potential strategies that they were trying to do was to try to disqualify the election results and then throw it to the House of Representatives where each state would have a vote, a one vote, and Trump would have won. Right. And he also called the Electoral College a danger to U.S. democracy and to the American people, and he cited the election of Trump as an example. And he's, you know, he supports the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. And by the way, 15 states have adopted legislation to join the NPVIC. So together they represent 195 Electoral College votes now. And it would go into effect if states representing at least 270 electoral college votes adopt that legislation. That's correct. But in any case, it's nationalpopularvote.com is the website. Yeah, it's not surprising that Raskin was named by the New Yorker magazine as Man of the Year. He's done a stellar job. 
on the January 6th committee, and he was a he was great as a lead manager during Trump's second impeachment. So there are some good, responsible public officials out there. Our own city council member, Democratic Socialist Shama Sawant, uh, won a recall election that was launched against her by very conservative corporate interests in Seattle, trying to get rid of her. And she's another uh, public official who constantly stays in touch with her constituents, is always you know, communicating with us about what she's doing and how we can support her and what needs to be done in the city of Seattle. So there are some public officials out there, Tom, who are doing the right thing, and they set a great example for people who really want to see responsible elected officials who do the right thing. So kudos to them. And, you know, I love them all for just for being there. So thank goodness. Yeah. Well said. What what was your conference call, your Zoom call with the Raskin? That was for progressive. uh, That was for the group um, that we're involved with called Uh boldprogressives.com. And he talked specifically. Yeah. He talked specifically about what happened on January 6th. Of course, he's got a book out there, too, mm-hmm. about you know, threats to democracy in the United States. And, yeah, he filled it all sorts of very uh, intricate and detailed questions about what's happening with the January 6th committee, what's happening with the people who have been indicted and subpoenaed. So it was very educational. And he's very much an inspiration to those of us who believe in democracy. Yeah, he's a, he's a good guy. He's a good guy, Jamie okay. Raskin. Yeah. Uh, Mark, thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from Always nice to hear from you. George in Illinois. Hey, George, what, uh, in Chicago, excuse me. Hey, George, what's up? First thing, I would just like to say a big thank you to you and Lamar Waldron for that extraordinary broadcast you did on about the Kennedy assassination. You're welcome. And uh, I was so bowled over by it, I had to listen to the rebroadcast. The uh, two of you deserve the highest praise for your continual pursuit of the truth in this story. Uh, hats off to you. Thank you. Thank you. We wrote a couple uh, of books about it for, for what it's worth yes, if you want to do a deep dive. Um, I well, I have, I have gotten into them. I haven't read them entirely, but mm-hmm. uh, they are excellent. Anyway, what I mainly called about today was, you know, this issue that came up about a month and a half or so ago where the governor of death down in Florida, Ron DeSatan, uh, wanted to establish what would essentially be his own private military force. And just by accident and looking up other things, I found that the notion of a state defense force that is separate from the National Guard has been around for quite a long time. Um, it's something that the federal government recognizes as part of the Compact Clause of the Constitution and under 32 U.S. Code 109 provides that state defense forces can exist, but they may not be called, ordered, or drafted into the armed forces of the United States, thus preserving their separation from the National Guard. Hmm. And it turns out that there's 22 states plus Puerto Rico right now that have these separate military organizations uh, named variously as state military, state military force, state guard, state militia, or state military reserve. And most of the rest of the states already have legislation on their books that's often generations old that authorizes the activation of such forces, even if they're not currently active. So what are these used for? Well, various uh, emergency relief services and uh, security in the event of, like, riots uh, within the state. 
Um, and th- as a matter of fact, it, it was this provision in Florida law that DeSantis was using when he announced his plans to reestablish the Florida State Guard. Currently, their state Army Guard and Air Guard are inactive. I'm, I'm not sure what's happened since this first came up. Mm-hmm. But the thing about this is, is that there are so many states that have these established units and you wonder how much overlap there is between them and members of outfits like the Proud Boys or the Three Percenters or the Michigan Militia. Or the Oath Keepers. Um, I mean, the ones who are explicitly, yes, exactly. you know, I mean, Oath Keepers literally means people who have sworn an oath to the Constitution. In other words, people who have, have, people who have been in the military or in, in police departments. Yeah, currently my home state of Illinois has legislation on the books that would provide for activating um, a state guard force, but uh, they're inactive at the present time. But I would say this is something that bears watching and investigation because of the current state of our nation with so many violent, rebellious people. You know, you wonder if they're plugged into these official organizations. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. George, is there a good source of information for this? Well, the best one that I found was um, on Wikipedia under the heading State Defense Force. It's it's pretty mm-hmm. thorough, and then it refers you to some uh, other articles. Um, interestingly enough, two blue states, New York and California, have a, the uh, rather extensive state guards. That, that are manned, as it were. Yeah, they're functioning. Yeah. Huh. Fascinating. Okay, I need to do a little research. George, thank you very much for that. You're welcome. I appreciate it. Good to, good to talk to you. Thank you. Russ in Hickory Hills, Illinois, or Hill, rather. Hey, Russ, what's up? Ah, okay, Tom. How are you doing? I am alive and kicking, Russ. <laughs> what's you know, on your Tom, mind you today? Took my, well, you took my thunder away. What's that? This, this Christian cinema, uh, protect the filibuster for the future? Tom, you're talking about a girl that voted for every tax cut Trump put out, every judge, and helped the moron in West Virginia put Susan Collins back in in Maine, and you're going to trust her as a Democrat now? I mean, this girl, Tom, I listened to Stephanie Miller, said she's got zero shot of winning re-election as a Democrat. She's a traitor, Tom. I mean, there's nothing more to say about her and Joe Manson. Well, A, I don't think she's a traitor. B, she's an adult. I don't think she's a girl. Uh, No, no, but I mean, let's be honest, Tom. Joe Manson probably ain't going to run. I didn't know he was 74. Does he really want the aggravation in two years? He'll be 76 in the state there. Unless you're a Republican, you won't win. Yeah. No, I, 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 well, no, it's, it's possible that he could win as a, as a, uh, as a conservative Republican? Democrat. Yeah, no, I, 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 you know, either one. And, and a lot's going to depend on what happens in the 2022 so why election. why is he fighting something that Jim Craner says, you're putting your state halfway to China. Well, how come you want to prove it? And this guy is no Democrat, Jim Cramer, on the squawk. No, I, I get that. You know, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, in my opinion, are, are acting out of economic interest. I, although, you know, Amy Siskind has this interesting theory that Sinema thinks that by going against what the public wants, um, she can get a John McCain-like stature in the state that brought us John McCain in Arizona. And uh, all the, perhaps change parties. I don't know. I, I didn't see Amy Siskind saying that, but you know uh, that the, the, this is uh, the, she thinks she's going to run for president. 
I don't, and, well, and, and I think it's entirely possible. I mean, it makes perfect sense given, trouble, you know, though, given her history. Um, it's it's she, the Roseanne she, Barr thing that I've been talking about. But I don't think that's the case with Manchin. I think Manchin is just trying to protect his coal interests. Here's the trouble, though, Tom. She wants to run, and she's, she's taken away her base. When she did that the lady, she wants to deport. The Hispanics make up 33% of Arizona. It was up last night. Yeah. The whites only make up 53%. The minorities are 47% of Arizona. Tom, she doesn't have much leeway if you get away. And yet, Arizona keeps selecting Republicans because it's yeah. so hard to vote in Arizona. I mean, Operation Eagle Eye started in Arizona. This was William Rehnquist's program back in the 64 election where white lawyers would go in and challenge black, brown, Native American voters in the polling places in the, in the Phoenix suburbs. And, uh, and areas around Phoenix, uh, you know, they've, they've got a very, very efficient voter suppression machine running in that state. And, uh, you know, but again, I, what, I'm, what I keep bringing this back to, and, I, and Russ, I'm with you, is that we need to, we need to absolutely kick ass in the 2022 election. It's What odd. happens to, um, what's her name? Is this going to bleed over? Because I got the feeling, Tom, the vice president, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, this is also going to affect. Feinstein in California. I think they've about had it with her, like, you know, I don't know. She's insulted the vice president, I think, and, and I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong with Feinstein. I think she, Feinstein is, I, I think she's so, starting to lose it, frankly, and, and, and I doubt she'll be running for re-election, but that's a whole completely separate issue. Russ, well, thank, that's, next, that's the same year, Tom. The next year, Feinstein's up for re-election? No, she's not, she's not up for re-election next year, or this year, rather. Is she? Am I missing something here, Russ? Oh, Russ vanished. Okay, sorry. Uh, Jerry in Buena Vista. I, I'm not. I don't follow Diane Feinstein that much. Jerry in Buena Vista, Colorado. Hey, Jerry, what's on your mind today? Uh, I just have a, a question. I don't know exactly how to enter this, but have we ever really, or has this country ever really had a democracy? I think that, you know, it's a really good question, Jerry, and I, th I think it's important to remember that in 1776 or that period from 1776 to 1789 when the Constitution was ratified, there, what, what the guys who put this thing together were putting together was literally the first democracy in a major nation, arguably in the world's history. I mean, they were looking at the Greek experiment where they, the legislators were pulled together by, by lottery. It was like jury duty, and that only lasted 47 years. I mean, the, the Greek Empire lasted about 300 years, but the, the democracy part of it only lasted 47 years. Uh, the Roman Republic was ne never really genuinely democratic. There was you know, such a huge slave population in, in uh, the Roman Republic, and, and as they extended out, they, you know, the voter franchise got smaller and smaller. And of course, you know, uh, uh, women could not vote in the United States until the 1920s. And African-Americans could not legally or easily vote in the United States until the 1960s, and, and they're still being suppressed. And so I think you could build a really strong case, Jerry, that America became a democracy in 1965, and we have yet to fully realize that, to fully implement that. And that's what's being resisted, is this transformation from America, of America, from basically an autocratic, oligarchic, um, you know, a white supremacist ruled nation to a true pluralistic multiracial democracy. That transition has been happening in, in my lifetime, you know, just in, in, a, in a single lifetime. 
a very, very brief period of time in the history of a country, you know. And, and so, you know, it's a, it's a relatively recent thing. And the question is, is it going to hold? Are we, are we going to move farther down the road of becoming a true democracy in a republic, a republican democracy, to quote James Madison? Or are we going to revert to being more of an oligarchy? Did I answer your question, Jerry? Well, uh, yes, but I just don't believe uh, Socrates didn't think it was a likely possibility. Oh, Socrates was uh, very opposed to democracy. Reading Will Rogers' uh, autobiography, he mentioned 100 years ago that if uh, people didn't know what their, uh, what their legislator were doing, uh, they could vote any way they wanted. Uh, yeah, he's talking. That, you, that, that's, you mentioned that's, pretty much the same thing I would have about the yeah. women's rights and, and the Tom black. Hartman. Yeah, no, he what, what he was talking about was the the uh, most states allow people to put things on the ballot. But uh, Jerry, I got to run. Thank you for the call. Okay, it's time to commit. Twenty twenty four is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Our book today is Mortal Republic, How Rome Fell into Tyranny by Edward J. Watts. This is from the first chapter, which I think is really more like an introduction. This book explains why Rome, still one of the longest-lived republics in world history, traded the liberty of political autonomy for the security of autocracy. It's written at a moment when modern readers need to be particularly aware of both the nature of the republics and the consequences of their failure. We live in a time of political crisis when the structures of republics as diverse as the United States, Venezuela, France, and Turkey are threatened. Many of these republics are the constitutional descendants of Rome, and as such, they have inherited both the tremendous structural strengths that allowed the Roman Republic to thrive for so long, and some of the same structural weaknesses that led eventually to its demise. This is particularly true of the United States, a nation whose basic constitutional structure was deliberately patterned on the idealized view of the Roman Republic presented by the second century BC author Polybius. This conscious borrowing from Rome's model makes it vital for all of us to understand how Rome's Republic worked what it achieved, and why, after nearly five centuries, its citizens ultimately turned away from it and toward the autocracy of Augustus. No republic is eternal. It lives only as long as its citizens want it. And in both the 21st century AD and the first century BC, when a republic fails to work as intended, its citizens are capable of choosing the stability of autocratic rule over the chaos of a broken republic. When freedom leads to disorder and autocracy promises a functional and responsive government, even citizens of an established republic can become willing to set aside long-standing principled objections to the rule of one man and embrace its practical benefits. Rome offers a lesson about how citizens and leaders of a republic might avoid forcing their fellow citizens to make such a tortured choice. Rome shows that the basic, most important function of a republic 
is to create a, a political space that is governed by laws, fosters compromise, shares government responsibility among a group of representatives, and rewards good stewardship. Politics in Century Republic should not be a zero-sum game. The politician who wins a political struggle may be honored, but one who loses should not be punished. The Roman Republic did not encourage its leaders to seek complete and total political victory. It was not designed to force one side to accept everything the other wanted. Instead, it offered tools that, like the American filibuster, served to keep the process of political negotiation going until a mutually agreeable compromise was found. This process worked very well in Rome for centuries, but it worked only because most Roman politicians accepted the laws and norms of the Roman Republic. They committed to working out their disputes in the political arena that the Republic established rather than through violence in the streets. Republican Rome succeeded in this more than perhaps any other state before or since. If the early and middle centuries of Rome's Republic show how effective this system can be, the last century of the Roman Republic reveals the tremendous dangers that result when political leaders cynically misuse their consensus, these consensus-building mechanisms to obstruct a republic's functions. Like politicians in modern republics, Romans could use vetoes to block votes on laws. They could claim the presence of unfavorable religious conditions to annul votes they disliked. And they could deploy other parliamentary tools to slow down or shut down the political process if it seemed to be moving too quickly toward an outcome that they disliked. When used as intended, these tools help promote negotiations and political compromises by preventing majorities from imposing solutions on minorities. But in Rome, as in our world, politicians could also employ such devices to prevent the Republic from doing what its citizens needed. The widespread misuse of these tools offered the first signs of sickness in Rome's Republic. Much more serious threats to Republics appear when arguments between politicians spill out from the controlled environments of representative assemblies and degenerate into violent con confrontations between ordinary people in the streets. Romans had avoided political violence for three centuries before a series of political murders rocked the Republic in the 130s and 120s BC. Once mob violence infected Roman politics, however, the institutions of the Republic quickly lost their ability to control the contexts and content of political disputes. Within a generation of the first political assassination in Rome, politicians had begun to arm their supporters and use the threat of violence to influence the votes of assemblies and the elections of magistrates. Within two generations, Rome fell into civil war. And two generations later, Augustus ruled as Roman emperor. When the Republic lost the ability to regulate the rewards given to political victors and the punishments inflicted on the losers of political conflicts, Roman politics became a zero-sum game in which the winner reaped massive rewards and the losers often paid with their lives. Above all else, the Roman Republic teaches the citizens of its modern descendants the incredible dangers that come along with condoning political obstruction and courting political violence. Roman history could not more clearly show that when citizens look away as their leaders engage in these corrosive behaviors, the Republic is in mortal danger. Unpunished political dysfunction prevents consensus and encourages violence. In Rome, it eventually led Romans to trade the Republic for the security of an autocracy. This is how a Republic dies, mortal Republic.
in Montgomery, Alabama. Hey, Norma, what's on your mind today? Uh, what a lot of people have said, I might be very redundant today. <laughs> okay. It's just that um, we have a Congress. There are so many people who have been sitting there for 40 years who act like they own their seat, whether they're a senator or a representative. And some of them are having hissy fits. It's the only way I can look at it, as because they don't want anything that will interfere with their power or their money, and they act like they have some kind of divine right of kings to interfere with whatever is proposed for the good of our country, because it might cut their money or cut their power. And, you know, a guy earlier was talking about treason. Everybody needs to read the Constitution and look at the definition of treason in the Constitution, and then maybe they can understand our problem. You and I have had that discussion before of anyone who willfully, deliberately, and knowingly harms the country should be charged with treason, but we can't do that, you know. But mm -hmm. these people... Yeah. Well, this is yeah. sedition, which is one step short of treason. I think treason is like basically sedition during war. So yes, I think is. sedition is it's probably... Hel helping, aiding and abetting an enemy of the country during a war situation. Yeah. And we need, we need to update that definition so that we can actually use it for people who, you know, if you're up incorporate there and you're... you're uh, incorporate insurrection into it. Yeah. Well, not only that, but when you stop and think about the fact that your senator is more interested in how money, much money he's going to make and how long he can stay there to make more money for himself, and he decides that he can also get a bigger chunk of the budget for his friends by cutting things like food, the, the SNAP card, the food stamps is what most people refer to it as, or, or cutting the money for education because you don't want educated people. They might complain if they learn something, or, and you really don't want them to learn how to think. Right. You know, these are the people, yeah, um, I, I have a bad habit of reading too much fiction. I've been reading Tom Clancy and, and uh, executive command orders. He's talking about we have a new president because the plane hit the Capitol and destroyed mm -hmm. everything and killed people. And he says, don't send me another lawyer. Don't send me another politician. Send me your dentist, your doctor, your, your engineers, your architects. Send me your pharmacists because they live and work in the real world, and that's what we need today. We've got an election coming, and I haven't even heard anything here in Alabama about who managed to get on the ballot for the primaries in March. Hmm. You know, and I'm wondering, where is our Democratic Party? We don't have an independent party here. We're a progressive one that can do anything. And so, you know, we're coming down, you know, nine months, Tom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, nine months. I, I, I would love to see you, Norma, as part of your local Democratic Party. Well, um, I have been down there, and they don't really like me because I refuse to hit uh, support Hillary. I supported Bernie. I ran as a delegate for Bernie. And so. uh, it was like, uh, why are you doing this? You know, yeah. you're interfering with our plan. We have new leadership now. But I'm still not seeing a lot. And yeah. I am 71 years old, Tom, you know. You know, we're the same age from May to yeah. August, but I'm ahead of you again. <laughs> and I'm disabled. I have a vision problem, and I have Dupuytren's, which is yeah. called the Viking disease, if yeah. you look that I'm up. I'm quite familiar with it, yeah. Um, no, yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I'm not, I, I didn't mean to call you out, Norma. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm but, you know, a lot of people, when I try to talk to them, they ask me, are you a professor? I said, no, I was lucky enough to get a decent elementary school education before education was destroyed. Yeah. And if you want to know why it was destroyed, look up the Powell Memorandum. I try to teach. But we need to get 
these people out of Congress who think that they have ownership of their seat in the Senate and their ownership of their seat in the House. Forty years is too long for someone to stay in that job. Well, I, you know, I'm not, there are, I think there's something to be said for institutional memory. And there are people who have been in the job way too long and, and don't feel accountable. But, but uh, I, that's, that's why we have elections, Norma. I know. Uh, but when we can't even uh, have a fair election, they pass a law here that if they don't like it, they can swap it, the same thing they did. You know, that's, that's coming up in our, in our, uh, legis- in our Just like in session. Texas. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. And so they're having pity parties for themselves, and it's going to cost our country freedom. Yeah, I'm with And you. excuse me, but I was born free, and I know it, and you're not going to do it to me. There you go. Norma, thank you very much for the call. Uh, I, and I salute that. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you and Jeff in Portland. Hey, Jeff, what's on your mind? Thanks for giving us a booster shot of sanity in these crazy times. First, I want to echo Senator Warnock's message to Mansion and Cinema, which is a quote from Dr. King, who said, the time is always right to do what's right. And I would add to that, Tom, when Democratic politicians do the right thing, they're embraced by the party and elevated by our voters. And that's the complete opposite of what's happening in Trump's Republican party. That's something hopefully those two will think about. But for the time being, it's something apparently lost on both of them. And if Cinema thinks she's doing a John McCain impression, she looks more like the John McCain in 1983 who voted against making MLK Day a national holiday You're right. rather, than the, yeah, rather than the McCain who apologized for that. Yeah, there was um, the, and, the kind of Barry Goldwater version of John McCain. And then later we got, uh, you know, the more rational, quirky version of John McCain. Yeah, the guy that worked with progressive Russ Feingold on campaign finance reform and saved Obamacare in his last vote before he passed away. But finally, Tom, I want to agree with you wholeheartedly in regards to 2022. We've got to get to work, and Akita, the electoral success, is going to be getting progressive ballot proposals in as many states as possible. Like you said, legalizing cannabis, raising the minimum wage, protecting reproductive rights, ending gerrymandering. These are all things that Michael Moore has a new piece, and he calls them voter catnip. And the piece is called How to Win Big this November. I don't know if you saw it, but it echoes what you've been saying. But you yeah. know, we really need to get to work and get these things on the ballot. Because I, re- I agree with you, Jeff. I remember right after the last election when it came out that legalizing marijuana actually polled better than Joe Biden did in Democratic states. And it polled well over the majority in red states. You know, and, and it yeah. polled better than Donald Trump did in red states, right across the board. And the same thing was true of the $15 minimum wage. And there was one other thing that was polling better than either Trump or Biden. I have to look it up and see what it was. I'm totally with you. Jeff, thank you for the call. Get out there, get active, tag your it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.